Oh, I found myself um, drawn to all was music, you know, and music really was something which is kind of inbred in me, and um, it started to, you know, show itself more and more. Um, it was around about, I think, when about 14, the schools were going to amalgamate. Uh, Philip Magazine was going to be closed down. We were going to amalgamate with a local school called Highbury Grove. I wasn't particularly keen on that. My parents wanted to resettle me and move me to a different school. Uh, hence, they tried to, you know, move me out the area towards um, Chinkford, Edmonton, put me to school in Edmonton. That was the Tottenham, Edmonton, Tottenham area, Arsenal supporter. That wasn't working. And uh, effectively, it got to the stage I just bunked off every single day. And how that looked was basically, I was coming back to the old neighbourhood. Uh, by this time, you know, local friends were getting involved in sound systems, you know, and we started to sort of... Um, yeah, generate our time towards it. And a uh, really funny story the other day, funny enough, uh, one of uh, the original guys, one of my friends, who we kind of started off in the sound system stuff together at the time. He went through different names, Dr. K, but DJ Hype would be more dominantly known as Massive now. Massive you know? superstar. Okay, so basically Kevin, you know, we remember telling this story. It's so funny because back then we described it as a piece of sponge in one deck. Because that's what it was, you know. Techniques turned so it didn't even, didn't even exist back then, you know. DJ Hart, Daddy Earl, Smiley Shabadaz, Andrew Pritchard, mate. Know your history. Yes, we go back, what did you say to me the other day? Acid ass. One turntable and a sponge. Remember that? One turntable and a sponge. That's it. That's where the great DJ Hart was. Yes. We haven't had a pair of techniques. No, they didn't exist. They didn't exist. And um, we basically used to go round to uh, Kyle and Elle's house, which is a few you know uh, blocks away. And um, you know they, in their own rights, became very well known in the jungle scene. They created a label called Sharp and Dance, which obviously was one of the major labels. You know, some people say it was the forefront of jungle music. And uh, but how it started was very different. You know, how it started certainly was with. Um, you know, we played reggae music. We put on small events, and as Kevin reminded me, the first. Um, interaction was, uh, I think it was him and Carl jumped over the back of the um, uh, the timber yard. He used to sit at the back of these houses, stole an um, eight and four piece of chipboard, carried it through the flats on their heads, and then got it back to the house where he borrowed um, one of their dad's uh, jigsaws and made our first speaker box. And that was the beginning, you know. And it wasn't long before we were all putting on parties. We created a sound called Mellow Magic for two of my friends who lived on the road. And um, we started to put on our own events from a very young age, you know, 15 years old. It's insane. So that was the first time we started to actually physically become entrepreneurs. And mm. entrepreneurs looked like, you know, we'd go into a house, you know, it'd, it'd be a squat or whatever, do it up, make a makeshift bar, you know, sell alcohol, which we'd get from the local off-license, charge admission, a couple of quid. And it was very funny because it was almost history repeating itself because if I took that clock back, I went back to the Pepperbot Club, it wouldn't have been a similar thing. So it only would have been something which happened, you know, sort of 20 years earlier. It was a really interesting fact without even knowing it. And then 20 years on from now, or less than 20 years from now, actually 10 years from now, the same thing would repeat itself. But we'll get to that one. And uh, yeah, so that's the beginning of it. Um, I went through that path. I love music. Uh, as music started to progress and change, I changed with it. Um, I became a rare groove DJ. That was part of you know what I wanted to do. The music became a very eclectic mix. What was your DJ name? 
the uh, Andy P. Andy P. Yeah. yeah, Andy P. Yeah, and it just had a sound system that was called the Wild Bunch, uh, not to be mistaken with the Bristol organisation. And I put on events, you know, I'd basically hire coaches and send them down to events like there was a place called Chester's in South End, the Club, maybe Forest Country Club, things like that. Yep. Sell tickets, put on shows. And uh, I started, you know, I was on that path, on that road, and was around about, actually it was exactly 1988. I remember I'd moved more into the actual technical side of things where I was um, hiring PA uh, systems. Had some friends uh, come in the shop one day because my parents had bought an off-license at that time in the heart of Hackney, Hackney Wick, uh, Hackney Wine Corner it was called. More of a hangout for a lot of people, community centre, we might as well call it a device centre. People would come get advice from my parents, my mum would always be cooking a pot of food. People would always get food, you know, it was really much like that. And some friends said they were having a party one night and they wanted me to do the sound system to them. Didn't need the DJ, I said not a problem, I turned up and... Um, at the event in Bethnal Green, you know, not knowing what to expect. It was a madness, you know. It was, it was empty one minute, the next minute it was absolutely mobbed with people, and everyone was shouting, I see and pouring with sweat and no shirts on. It was like completely insane. So that's your first thing of a rave. To explain. It wasn't even raped, you know, what the hell it was. That it was just yeah, insane. Was that it was just madness, you know. And what I then realised, obviously, something big was about to happen. And every week, week in, week out, People were saying to me, look, can you do the PA? Of course, because they were, you know, breaking the warehouses. Now, to any, you know, respectable uh, PA company, they're not going to really want to touch that, you know? When you see someone's jimmying off the door to a warehouse. But I've been doing this, you know, for years in terms of the blues parties, you know, breaking the swaps and putting parties. So it was nothing unusual to me. So I was happy to do it, making really good money from it. And eventually, you know, on that road, it time come and I thought it's time for me now to get involved myself and it kind of started with people who were lots of raids were coming here and now so sometimes the promoters didn't really have the money to pay me so I said okay we just let's do something well I'll go in as part you know I mean as a partner on this one just do them like that but then I decided at one point it seemed a really good idea to actually you know put my own one on and First one we staged uh, was Genesis, uh, the 10th of December, 1988. Where did and the name Genesis come from, Andrew? The name Genesis, that's really funny, actually. Okay, so how the Genesis brand and name came around, uh, Wayne, who was my partner in it, he liked the group Genesis with Phil Collins, and uh, we were toying for a name, and he'd said, you know, Genesis fits a really nice name, and I then thought, it, it works, but my mum was very, you know, she was a very biblical person, you know, everything she used to do, you know, we used to have a picture of him as a child growing up of Jesus, it was called a Sacred Heart of Jesus, hanging in the passage, you know, it was like comedy, you'd walk past this Sacred Heart of Jesus, it was like, he's looking at you, you know, the eyes seem to move for some reason, you know, he's always his eye on me. And uh, it was, um, I had a Bible, Bible in every bloody room, and I picked up the Bible, I remember Genesis, and I opened it, it was like, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. That when in the beginning, Genesis chapter one, this is a sign. So he called it Genesis chapter one, and uh, went down to the local ticket shop. I've been going to for years to, to get get flyers made. I think it was called Centerpoint at the time, Centerpoint something like that. And um, yeah, had like I think five hundred flyers, flyers printed. We looked through the book of illustrations and saw you know a picture of the head of Zeus, and thought well, that'll do. You know, we stuck a Zeus head. So effectively, we put. Greek God, the most powerful Greek God, Zeus on it, and called it the most biblical chapter of the Bible, Genesis, unwittingly and unknowingly. Anyway, uh, first event we had was uh, Allgate East Station, 
uh, terrible warehouse, Wayne found it. Uh, there was no banisters, there was no stairs, it was, like, it was a complete death, another death trap, you know. But it would do, it was one of those ones. So I had the sound system, had the lights, we went in there, we set up during the day and sneaked back there in the night, started to give out flies to everyone and made a meeting place, all get his station, which I don't think it's not there anymore. And uh, that was it, bang. Clubs emptied, the Astoria, the usual places like that, and we were mobbed. Um, yeah, first event, police did turn up as they tend to. This time I realised Wayne was a really good um, talker and he would try to front things, so Wayne was stuck at the door. He uh, tried to talk to the police, um, one incident happened which was hilarious, the fire alarm went off and uh, we had to give him a hammer basically to run around all the back of the warehouse, smashing off hammer, um, the alarm bells to go back to the policeman and say to the police, I'm sorry, the alarm went off, I had to just go take care of it, switch it off, you know, mm. Not, but no, he's got the hammer in the other hand, in behind his back, you know, with just smashing off alarm bells. And uh, that was our first event, you know, it went on. Not no more than a couple of grand, but it was still a lot of money, you know. It was something whereas, you know, to get it through the door and to get it on was the biggest money. it was a fun way to do it. Yeah, you know, it was something so I was getting like maybe five hundred pounds a night to hire my sound system anyway. So I was doing sometimes two, three parties a week. So, you know, it was I was I was getting pretty much for the but the buzz of doing your own event made it all the difference, you know. And um yeah, shortly after that of course, we had a party, that was great, but we didn't have a warehouse. We come unstuck, um, and then uh, we were in limbo. We looked at a few warehouses, we were driving around the streets or the back alleys at night, trying to find somewhere, couldn't find anywhere. One night we drove down the back of uh, Lower Clapton Road and saw these lights on in this warehouse, so we pushed the door, saw like about four people standing up there with some sort of strobe light going on, some music going on, and it was an attempt at a warehouse party, so, we thought, bloody great warehouse, you know what I mean? So we said to the guys, look, you know, let's take this warehouse off of you, like, they were having it. So, you know, we saw this, like, the lights on in this little warehouse, and it was like, okay. So the guys sort of like, you know, uh, no, you're not, you know, they haven't said a warehouse, all precious about it. So we were stuck now, didn't have a venue, what do you do? Anyway, um, wasn't long after that, uh, Wayne said, look, I've got a friend, Keith, and uh, he found a warehouse. Obviously, he wants to be part of it. So I thought, okay, let's see the warehouse. Anyway, we went down and drove back exactly by the warehouse, what we'd seen a week before. Anyway, somehow we'd managed to get keys for it. So it was like, okay, we're on, you know. Let's bring him on as a partner and let's um, have a crack at this anyway. We, you know, subsequently sort of like moved on what was called Leaside Road and we set about, you know, making it our venue. So we had time to dress it properly, prepare everything. We used to do little bits and pieces, went to, um, um, a place in um, uh, Silverman, I think they were called, in Stepney, we used to get these, these parachutes and uh, this camouflage netting and all these bits and pieces yeah. to kind of decorate the warehouse. Yeah. We used to get sawdust from this uh, mill, basically. We'd put it down on the floor to absorb, you know, when people had drinks and yeah. stuff like that. I think we've only done it, actually. There's lots of oil, actually, on the warehouse surface, so you put the sawdust to absorb the oil. And we made it one of our trademarks for our warehouses ever since that day. And uh, yeah, so we set it all up, uh, had an event, I think that was held Christmas Eve, if I remember rightly, actually another week before, maybe before Christmas Eve, had the first event in now, and uh, that went quite well, you know, it was the first one, we sort of broke in now, and had, had things going, it was used to store tyres, and we created all these bars and stuff from nice. tyres, and the DJ ramp from tyres, everything, 
And um, so, what about the, the drugs at the rave? Were you guys arranging or sorting the no, drugs at the rave? No, at all? no, the drugs no. are obviously essential for the raves to be successful. Yeah. Well, time. drugs. Listen, anyone will be lying if they turn around and said that ecstasy wasn't the most major, significant part of the raves because it was. You know, um, at that time we were not into that. You know, and. Um, I certainly wasn't into it, you know, and I was never, never into it, you know, I don't think people were really into it like that either. But um, it was a question of people who came in, and it was very unorganised as well, in terms of, you know, had it really, you know, got its structure. These were coming in, but they weren't really at the point which, you know, divulged over those following months, you know, yeah, when it became a real business. Yeah, so people were bringing in a few thousand there, a few thousand there, you know, but it wasn't a massive, massive industrial business that it became you know and um yeah we had a party there christmas eve that grew again then we had another on their box you know that grew even bigger and by the time we got to um new year's eve basically we were kind of bigger and bigger but one significant turning point was yeah, i think it was in between christmas eve and boxing day a guy turned up at the warehouse now i'd known him previously because when i used to hire the sand i remember one particular incident i'd done um, I was brought uh, to meet some guys. This was Jeremy Taylor and Tintin who went on to do energy. And uh, they were trying to put on an event called In Search of Space. I think it was over in um, West London, a big uh, carpet warehouse. And uh, yeah, so I was involved to help them with that. And um, never forgot what happened basically that particular day. Uh, the police had turned up in mobs and drones because they'd invited along the world in action. And they were doing this whole thing for the mystery tour. And uh, the police officer got wind of it. And the police turned up in there, you know, in their dozens with riot shields and everything like that to stop the event. Anyway, me being me, I decided to lead a, you know, mob of people towards the police. And of course, everyone I thought was behind me, everyone wasn't behind me. All was in front of me with dogs and police. And subsequently, I took hiding from the police that night. But um, I remember Jeremy Taylor, Jeremy distinctively, because he had a thing, a cherry blue, a cherry... Um, cherry red BMW and I've got was <laughs> smoke coming off the wheels as soon as the uh, police arrived, you know, which is quite funny. But yeah, I remember meeting Tony um, Colson later up in their offices anyway. So this was the same guy that turned up in their warehouse and was like, okay, it was like, same thing we do with other guys, like this is a great warehouse, you know, and like, we don't have none of it. Um, there's no way he was gonna, you know, to have our warehouse, we were getting established now as Genesis. So he said, look, why don't we do parties together? You know, I thought, okay, that can work. He said, he's got a great crowd coming down. He's done a little event prior to that at Greenwich. So it was like, okay, game on. So we put together an event. I think that was, that was actually Christmas Eve, that one. And uh, we, sound system, he said, he can organise it. We got um, Joey J, I think um, that was um, uh, Norman J's brother, who used to do shake and finger pop, but there was a sound system before that called uh, uh, Great Tribulation. So sound system was good, um, lighting was up to scratch, the event was good, but then the next party we scheduled to do was going to be with Sunrise, and then we went from there. So we started the Genesis Sunrise um, era, so mm. to speak. And they just grew, you know, I mean, they grew literally overnight. Um, I remember when we got to New Year's Eve, um, it was one of those events. It was like, wow, this is going to be the event. You know, we're going to really have it down a damn pad because people come in. Remember the first night we'd opened Leafside Road, biggest track at the time was S Express. Um, that was a huge track. And uh, Mark Moore and S Express brand actually turned up at Leafside Road, you know, and people were now starting to hear about the event. So when we went New Year's Eve now, 
it was amazing, you know, we tapped out 6,000 people and it was like huge, it was like wow, this is, there'd never been this party that size ever before, we had Mini Vanilli had come down, they were like the biggest, globally the biggest yeah. group, you know what I mean, in the world, you know, you had lots of celebrities, Boy George was there, everyone was, came down and mixed, it was a mix of everybody, black and white, rich, poor, this place was, I only can describe it as a modern day Studio 54, yeah. because people have always said to me, what was Genesis, what was so special about it? And I think it was a Studio 51 of its time. And it relevant from any venue, whatever venue you we went to, we put our brand on it, you know? And uh, yeah, we we done that. That was a great event, New Year's Eve. We thought it can't get any bigger. And of course, it was the first week of January. Who goes out first week of January? It's a dead time, everyone knows this. And um, we held the event now, and we tapped out 8,000 people, you know? And the warehouse was huge, the party was getting out of control, big, and it was just going on and on and on, you know, it seemed unstoppable. Mm, so at this point, obviously, where the party's getting bigger, bigger, you're making more and more money, at a certain point, um, the criminal elements started to take a look at these parties, it's, like, when did this happen? This was pretty much at the time of tapping out Lee Side Road, yeah. so we tapped out Lee Side Road, and, um, ironically, it was, um, it was funny because we thought we were going to be at Lee Side Road New Year's Eve, you know, because New Year's Eve had come and uh, we were in the warehouse straightening the place up, police officer walked in and was like, it's a straight warehouse because we'd already been through this when we thought we had, you know, we had keys, we thought we had a lease. And it was like, right, it's a fire hazard, you know, coming back with a fire inspector. He came up with a fire inspector, the fire inspector was less than pleased that he'd been dragged at his, you know, Christmas party. And uh, basically just looked around the warehouse, didn't even do a proper inspection. If he did, like about half an hour before, we'd sort of put about 50, 100 black bags full of tins and threw them on the fire exit, do you know what I mean? And I mean, it was madness. The guy just literally opened the doors, looked at the doors and just went, said, everything's free, have a buy. And that was us, you know, we had a license to print money at that point, you know? And people were getting to know about us as well because I mean, we were closing down the West End. And uh, done a huge party, um, as I said, the, you know, the week after uh, New Year's Eve. And then, sadly, it turned out the warehouse that we thought was legitimate wasn't. Uh, Gypsy had you know, given the keys to Keith, charging for 500 quid a week. He was throwing tyres in there, but he owned nothing about it. So we were out on our ear. But effectively, um, because we'd grown such a big organisation so quickly, the police were terrified that, you know, you'd have 10,000 people now turn up at Leaside Road, middle of Hackney, in the middle of the night, on a Saturday night. Where are you going to go? You know, it's a, it's a nightmare, logistically. So we had two police cars, one at each end of the road, giving out our flyers for the new location of the warehouse. You know, you couldn't invent it. A warehouse was just broken into, you know what I mean? It's mad. And uh, around about that time, as I said, uh, then you could see criminal eyes were on us. So it was a really good idea to, you know, move forward with, uh, beef up the security, you know? So uh, we beefed up the security. Um, it was actually Wayne's stepdad who worked at a club and he knew some doormen uh, a lot of those guys were connected to the football firm ICF. And uh, they'd done door work though. They were pretty good at what they'd done. Others were armed robbers. Others, you know, there were known faces in the area who'd done door work. And they seemed suitable to be our door. And uh, they became the Genesis crew, later known as G-Force. Yep. And um, they moved with us, effectively. And we started to go from event to event to event until we were actually, you know, every Saturday night was Genesis night. And, you know, we did, we literally did tip out the West End. People weren't allowed to go into some of those clubs that they would go to on a Saturday traditionally, they were coming straight to us. Added to that, we had a, a guy who'd done a mobile cab firm outside the WAG, 
and he would um, give out our flyers in exchange, basically, to all the punters, leaving clubs, being exchange for, you know, being able to set up, you know, his mobile cab facility outside the parties, wherever we were. So he had a gold mine going on, and we had a great thing, because we didn't have to, even, we did fly still ourselves, but we knew virtually every single punter going into the West End, every club in the West End, on a Saturday night, but leading up to that Saturday night, they were getting Genesis flyers. So our flyer distribution went from, like, sort of, ordered 500 flyers to get in like 10, 20, 30,000 flyers. Do you know what I mean? Because we knew they were getting distributed. Do you know what I mean? So you knew we were going to get our parties filled. Everyone knew about them. And uh, it grew, it grew, it grew. We literally went from one warehouse to the other. Loads of funny things, you know, happened. And uh, in between, there were loads of... We became great at blagging the police, you know. As I said, there were lots of funny stories we could cover. And I've had some, you know... It, madly hilarious ones. Wayne done some great ones. I remember one particular one, the police had turned up and he told them that um, it was a photograph, it was a, it was a film, a video shoot for George Michael, you know, and a copper had turned up, really fell for it. Even guy came back and asked for his photograph, you know, and he had a bogus guest list he'd made up, basically, and let the copper see it, so as you could see Elton John, all his names on there, and at one stage we had the police actually parking cars, right, and it was just like a complete, made a mockery of him, you know, and uh, it was always that, it was always the black, it was one, but it was harmless, you know, we were doing this stuff and we were moving with it gradually, as you said, at this time now, it had lots of elements which were lurking, but our door was incredibly strong and they were actually really a powerful door. And what was amazing was, even though they were football hoogers themselves, and it was really crazy because you'd have West Ham, Chelsea, Arsenal, Tottenham, all these hooligans would go. So it wasn't just West Ham people, it wasn't just black people, it wasn't just the pub guys, it was the extremes. So it was the guys that go to the blues parties, reggae, who would never go to an event like that, were now coming. It was the football hooligan mob who went to the pub only, were now coming. And the whole of Clubland was coming, celebrities, you had the whole mixture of people. And their dog, do you know what I mean? It was like crazy. It must have been an incredible time. It, it was the best time. It was incredible. It was incredible. Energy and everything that was going on. You felt like you were celebrities. You didn't feel like it. You were celebrities, you know? Mm. And it was great, and we lived in the moment, which is fabulous to do. But unfortunately, at that time there, um, during the fat shot, right, there's also the raves, the legal raves, and ecstasy was becoming a heavily politicised topic, and they were using. It was, it was yeah. another something that they were going to use. Well, what happened was, is basically, there was a, the, the, the political weight was put down there. And there's a number of reasons it contributed to this. Because you understand, the breweries were the form of working class entertainment, okay? So the pubs were where the breweries made all their money. And we can understand, during that time, people were going to the pub for a drink, but then they were going out. They weren't staying in the pub. And when they were going to the warehouse parties, they weren't drinking beer, they weren't drinking spirits, they were drinking Lucasade, they were drinking Pepsi, they were drinking Evian water. So the brewers were taking a massive hit, both for, you know, for, 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 for sales, take-out sales, and for, you know, and for in-house sales. So tax purposes also is what you've got to understand, tax. and the brewers were really well positioned politically as well. So a lot of the pressure was put on that particular scene. I too, still to this day believe, was, you know, a big part of it was down to the breweries, their influence and power in government. And, uh, of course, you know, Thatcher didn't like the idea of all these people getting together because divide and conquer, of course, is always the way of any government. 
and uh, you suddenly had all these different fractions of football hooligans all together, best match on you know Saturday night, obviously they're still fighting on the, on the tourists on the Saturday afternoon, but they could come to our parties and that was it. So if you look at it in today's gang culture, because you've got to understand that, you know, the biggest problem we've got now is gang culture today, all these postcode gangs, kids killing each other, fighting each other, football hooligans, even though they must have killed each other, were not dissimilar. They were mobs of people that would fight against each other in rivalry. We should put an end to that and prove they could actually get on in the same space at the same time. So it was possible. Now, if you look at a government, and you know, football hooligans is one of their biggest things to play on, you know, to get votes, to get money, to say you're gonna go hard on them, mm. and all the other stuff, we were target number one because of the drugs, we became target number two. So there it was, you know, it was laid up on laid up on us basically and Margaret Thatcher, in her undivided wisdom, uh, recruited a man by the name of Ken Tappenton, who was a commander. He was in charge of a special unit called yeah. Pay um, Pay Party Unit. Yeah, a couple of and he was yeah, and he was lifted out, you know, with a team of six hundred men to go and hand a stand on a Saturday night. Yeah, we spoke about um, how impressive your military organisation was, and uh, see the people of today, the promoters of today, don't realise what you had to go through to put yeah, on these things. Yeah, it's finding rage, cutting in the weather. Legally or illegally, setting up sound systems, bagging these, yeah. putting out flyers. Yeah, you know, you paid a big price, and historically as well, you know, and this is what people have to understand. We've come for a lot, you know, because and before this, going back to the first generation of West Indies when they were doing little blues parties, I mean, you went through a big price just to have your culture, you know, and and, and relate to it by having a blues party on a Saturday night and having your traditional food and playing on traditional music. You know, there were guys that were caught with a spliff and got two years in prison back then. Do you know what I mean? And it was not dissimilar to when we were doing parties. You know, there were guys that were caught with a bag of these and they were doing big sentences, you know, because the government wanted to, they didn't want you to have the freedom that you could dance all night. We never knew where the parties were going to take place. So we had to be as wise and adept as them at getting the manpower out. So we worked on the principle that at any one time we could muster up to three to four hundred police officers. Now the idea of that was if we could muster four hundred police officers in the first hour, we could stop a party. They hadn't made that law legislation and they weren't benefiting from it. Yeah. So they wanted to be strict and prove it's our way or no way. That's probably the first people who get caught up in the crackdown and the ones who end up suffering the most, isn't Got it? it? So Got it. It's what it is, you know. And uh, they were our parties. We created our own brand. We weren't very good business people, I'll say that, we were entrepreneurs, but we didn't understand about establishing brands, you know, Ministry of Sand came after us, they understood about branding, yeah. you know, had we took that on board at the time and thought about it a little bit more, or brought some of the good business into the business, you know, we would be that brand, you know, we're yeah. getting headphones made and we're getting, you know, jackets made and you're getting record labels and you're getting everything that comes with it, all bells and whistles. Yeah, because everything that came next after. It came that. after, the whole merchandise concept, the whole idea of a real brand did. But what we can happily say is we were some of the first pioneers of that scene and, you know, as mad as it sounds, it was a landmark in British history, music and culture, not seen since punk rock. Maybe not even British, just worldwide. If you look at the, their yeah. dance music today, it's yeah. spread around the world. Yeah. A lot of it did come from this country. Well, look, one of the things that shocked me the most was um, you've got London British, um, yeah, modern uh, history museum. And Genesis, our first flyer, Genesis chapter one is exhibited. And I'll give you the exhibit number for that as well. That's a history museum. You know, so any way you look at it, cut it shut, it's like sort of dice it, 
You know, because Darren said tomorrow morning to my children, I've done something which actually made history. You know, and it's marketing history. Whether you want it to raise it, you can't erase history. It's going to stay there. And, you know, so that was a part of my life that was good. And there was stuff that came with it because you're right about the door wars and stuff like that, you know, because money was changing hands in a big way. And security firms, you know, were looking a part of that action. Our security team were a powerful team. Um, and they kind of went on, you know, forward to sort of, you know, get work in other clubs. Yes, was Colton one of the leaders of that team? Colton was one of the 12. We had 12 guys. There was, they called them 12, and we had 12 very well-known guys who were the framework of Genesis security. Colton was one of those guys, and other people that Colton knew, some of those were from the original ICF football firm. Others were just very well-known people who had histories in armed robbery with, you know, and, and violence, yeah, and faces, you know. Um, but I must say one thing, they held our door like no other door. Do you know what I mean? Genesis's door was bulletproof. That was the right, everyone knew it. You know, you knew, if you come to Genesis, don't fuck around. Do you know what I mean? That was as so simple as it was. Off in, in if you stars. came to Genesis, you just don't fuck around. Do you know what I mean? And that was it. And it was a stamp mark, you know? And it was very respect, it was a respect thing as well. Mm. But they kind of got a little bit, you know, um, carried away with it and stuff, and they started to get involved with other doors, and, you know, there were people to say they were doing extortion rackets and all kinds of stuff. and. By giving themselves this glorious name of the G-Force, the police didn't identify the G-Force from Genesis. And because we've been fronting these parties, you know, and the police every week were like looking for poor Wayne, you know, he's got himself on his baseball cap and all kinds of stuff because he was going to get, get fronted. Oh, uh, they had us as a manhunt, you know. Well, so it was all kind of new to them, wasn't it? This whole rave thing. So it was like security, what, this isn't you, this is it you. Was, and this is complete chaos, you know. Like, I'm a pretty good blagger myself, you know. Don't get me wrong. And I remember... Um, there was incidents where I've, you know, blagged in, you know, blagged warehouses and the, like, the police have turned up with the owner of the warehouse and I've blagged him to turn off his alarm. They've told him, you know, that my dad's bought the warehouse off of him. The guy's convinced himself that the warehouse has been sold. You know, opportunist. I remember one particular day, it was funny enough, we'd, um, we weren't doing a party that night. It was Sunrise doing a party and um, John McHugh, somehow Tony managed to get John McHugh, who was U2 stage manager, on side with him, you know, he used to discuss with me about six hundred pound, you know, silk suits. He'd be pushing out speakers like, you know, at six, seven in the morning. It's like, what the hell was he doing like that? Anyway, um, I remember one day he had office. He had a company up front, a huge staging company, and they were based over Docklands. Had another branch in Los Angeles. I think Bono bought it out completely at some stage, and uh, we were <laughs> when it's a, we were going to Tony's event. So we turned up at the office. John said, "Come by." And he'll get us like a ticket. Anyway, it was a ticket. We actually done was got his business card, laminated it, and uh, said, "Listen, what you do is at the door, just you know, give them that, and that's like a VIP." So we said, "Great." So we, myself, Wayne, a couple of girls, we had with us, went down, got them. Anyway, we're driving back, and I tried to take a leak. So listen, I said, "Bones, pull up here." So I jumped out of the car, walked into this alley. I started to pee. Anyway, I've heard someone shout behind me, "Oi!" Anyway, I thought it was Wayne just messing around. Anyway, I was carried on. The footsteps are coming closer. Oi! It's coming closer. But suddenly now, it's that, oi! Right in the back of my head. So I've turned around full face. So what the fuck do you want? Anyway, I'm looking face to face with a policeman. Right, that's it, you're Nick. So he's grabbed me, right? Wayne's seeing all this, looking from the car with these two girls in the back, right? I thought, oh my God, that is big nicks, anyway. So he took me to the police car, thrown me in the back. So Wayne's now driven at distance behind the police car to Limehouse Police Station. I've got in Limehouse, I thought, oh, for fuck's sake, right? All I wanted to do was go to a party, but I remember I've been doing warehouse parties constantly, 
some of those parties have been in Limehouse. And in one instance, some of my equipment had been confiscated by the station, so I'd be back and forth with them. And I'm thinking, holy fuck. Anyway, so we're sitting in now, so the policeman um, looked at me and he goes, um, right, okay, so what exactly are you doing? Exactly what are you up to? So I thought, I'm going to think on my feet here. I've gone, I don't know what you're saying, what I've been up to. So I wanted to go to urinate, I said, but you know, I, I, I was desperate because I had to get to Wembley. So what are you going to Wembley for? I said, we've got a show tonight. I said, you too. I said, I'm the main engineer. It looked like that, right? I've gone and said, without me, there is no show. I said, you don't understand, this is catastrophe. So they looking at each other, thinking, this is geezer for real. Anyway, I've took the card out of my pocket and I've gone, look, you better phone the manager. And he's not looking at that anyway. It looks at each other. I've got there, I said, the doctor's number there, the LA number's there anyway. So he's looked. I know John's left the building now because he was, he was going just after we left. So anyway, now, when they phone the number, I know it's just going to ring, right? So he's called the number. It's ringing, it's ringing, it's ringing because he's had a phone call. Right, there's no answer there. But he's heard the message machine, got it? So he knows it's bonified. Yeah. I've gone, you better call the LA number. He's gone, we can't call America on this phone. This is the police phone, taxpayers, money, and all that. I goes, look, I goes, I've got his mobile. I said, give me a phone, I'll call the mobile. They go, no, tell me the number, I will call it. Anyway, I've peeled off Wayne's mobile number off the top of my head. So That's when people used to be able to remember numbers back in these days. Back in the day, right? So he's gone, bang. Anyway, his phone, Wayne, and I've heard him goes, hello, is that John? I've heard a pause on the phone because Wayne knows what kind of blaggers we are. So I've heard, uh, yes. <laughs> he's gone, oh, I've got someone there to talk to you. So he's giving me the phone. As he's giving me the phone, Wayne's pissing himself laughing at the other end. So I'm just going, I said, John, I said, this is terrible. I said, I said I've been stopped by the police. I said, um, I said, I don't know what we're going to do. I said, Bottom's going to go mad. I said, because this show's completely sold out. I said, there's over 7,000 tickets up. This is Wembley Stadium. Jesus Christ. <laughs> anyway, so I've got, I don't know what we're going to do. I said, without me, there is no show. I'm watching the police, his face get redder and redder and redder. Beads of sweat coming off him. He's thinking, what have I done? Because really, they should have nicked me, right? Anyway, I've gone, what do you mean we've got to get the lawyers down? I said, um, uh, oh God, I suppose we could get them here. I said, um, sorry, officer, what's your name? And he's looked at me, and he's heard lawyers, he's heard due to, he's constantly getting called off. He's gone, uh, uh, uh. so he don't want to give me his name. I've gone, um, hold on, John, um, let me just um, find out. I don't know what the charges, how serious they are. I said, how serious are the charges? He's come like this. So the policeman out, he's backtracking drastically because he doesn't want his headache, right? It's going to be in his station. So I've gone, um, look, I said, John, I, I don't know. Let me ask him. I said, um, what, what's going to happen to me? Don't worry, it'll be all right. Don't worry, it'll be all right. So I said, John, I think it'll be all right. I said, you haven't got to contact one of the lawyers just yet. I said, let me see how this works out. Anyway, I put the phone, give the phone back to him, right? He's put the phone down. Anyway, so they're looking at me now, and it's a standoff, isn't it? I've gone, I'm really sorry for that. Like, you know, I didn't want to cause all these problems. I said, but this is, we've got a major problem. Anyway, it took me downstairs. So in my entire life, this is not, I've been in the military police station, right? And I've never been put in a police cell with a door left open, right? So they put me in the cell, sitting in the cell, thinking, what's going to go on next anyway? He's come creeping back down to the thing, right? The sergeant, and gone, look, said, um, you know, I think he's overreacted, he said, by, you know, arresting you so hastily and that he should have perhaps maybe just addressed you in the right way and told you not to do. He said, um, you've got to stay here, he said, for an hour or so. He said, well, we've got to obviously process certain things. He said, um, 
But um, he said, I'm going to ask you something. He said, a little favour. He said, my son, he said, absolutely loves you too. He said, there any possibility you could get, a, you know, if you can't understand anyway, get a photograph or, a, or a, something signed. So this, I said, after you help me, I said, I anything. I said, what's your son's name? I said, written his son's name. Then I said, I said, I don't know how to get this to you. Better give me your address. Right, <laughs> so the cop was giving me his address. And I said, I'll tell you what I said. I said, as soon as I said, I said, I said, I get back. I said, I bono and all the guys to sign this on a new CD. Anyway, swallowed that. So he's can't let me out. Anyway, when he let me out, Wayne's sitting outside the car, pissing himself, laughing. Got in the car, we've driven down. I think it was called Midsummer's Night Dream, that part. It was an amazing part he had in Slough. And uh, yeah, that was just another one of those Blake stories. But we became really good at Blake. Such fun stuff, wasn't it? That yeah, but Blake and the police was never a problem. You could pretty much blag anyone, you know, and uh, that was part of the fun. And that was part of that journey that we're seen. It was quite harmless, but harmless to a degree. A lot of people, you know, did take drugs. And there was a bigger dynamic to it as well. And it took me years later to really get it. And the party drug scene, would you say as much? This is different from bringing a cross hard heroin and coke, isn't it? Yeah, you know, Christian, let me tell you this though, right? It took, it's taken me to get to this stage in rehabilitation to understand it. Two things gave birth that, you know, over that scene. One was the birth of the social dealer. Prior to that, drug dealers were holding criminals, okay? And a drug dealer sold drugs, that was it. What you had in the warehouse parties, it opened it up to middle-class white kids yeah. selling drugs. Because, not because they were drug dealers per se, they actually wanted to take some pills for themselves. They had a group of friends, maybe eight, nine, ten friends, all going to buy a pill. So in their head, if they buy 50, they get a really good deal. So they're actually... A, Give them their drugs and get their drugs for free. Yeah, no, I, probably, and, I end up falling into that. That wasn't from you engineering creating these illegal rapes. This was right. never to be going to happen. It never this is from right. drug okay. laws more so than if Exy hadn't been created. Yeah. The, when Exy got created, these things were happened because of the drug laws, not because of the illegal rapes. Well, look, ecstasy wasn't created overnight. Ecstasy had been knocking around since the Second World War. Yes, yeah, since the war. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And people don't realise that. You know, it was given to soldiers, yeah. basically, to keep them warm in those environments and, you know, give them a stable flight together. But it's something, obviously, it was it was almost the perfect timing of the music, of the scene, of the political landscape, and the drug fit perfectly in the middle of it, you know? And, as I said, so that was a wonderful period of time because it united people across Britain black, white, it, it was indifferent. There was nothing like it ever seen before or seen to this day. And in many ways, I wish, you know, I pray that something could come along that could actually, you know, bring the young people together again in a positive way, you know. Um, and if it could come without a drug being at the centre of it, that would be fabulous, mm. do you know what I mean? But yeah, so social dealers really were born from next to from the scene, warehouse party scene, I have to take responsibility for that. And many of those people who were then selling drugs, decided they were going to make a career a living out of it, and they then became drug dealers. They moved from, from selling ecstasy to selling cocaine. So again, that has to be acceptable that that's something just happened. Yeah. You know, so again, I can um, corroborate with that. That's the problem. People yeah. don't realise how that small decision can lead yeah. to so such I'm going to be practical and tell it as it is, because Perfect if I'll be lying. Yeah, I'm going to take it on the chin. Yeah. I'm going to say straight, look, I've done it innocently at that time, but maybe what those, that opened the door to was things that at the end of the day have affected people's life because people do suffer. You know, children do suffer when their parents are on drugs. Do you know what I mean? The children aren't properly necessarily looked after in the right way they should be. You know, there's distance between the families. You know, there are people that are overdosed. There are, you know, they suffer when they should be, you know, spending money on their kids or, you know, focusing on something otherwise. They can lose days taking drugs. They can 
damage their health taking drugs. Yeah, so no, stuff can happen. So I'm not going to sit here and, and I'm telling you this as someone who's responsible for importing and bringing in so many drugs, you know, and moving them across the globe that, you know, at the end of the day, I've got a lot to answer for. That's the reality of it, you know? So, are you, are you much worse than the sort of beer production companies, the people that are bringing across all this beer, or the Tesco's? In all honesty, look, in all honesty, right? There are there are drugs that people give to people, and they're supposedly in the benefit of cure and of health. You know, you can take a, 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 a headache tablet, you can take a pain relief tablet, and it can eat out your liver. Do you know what I mean? You're not hearing that. So. There's damage that is being done every day and there are drugs which should be manufactured by massive pharmaceutical companies supposedly for curing elements when there are actually herbs and plants in the rainforest which will do that with no harm to your, you yeah. but the benefit isn't to the drug company. Do you see what I mean? Benefits drug companies. So there are evils out there. We've got to accept that. Absolutely. But I won't accept now in my, at this stage that yeah, I can, you're trying to pass the buck. I can't pass the buck. I can't turn and say to myself but I justify what I've done because everyone else was doing it. Because if we do that, we're living in anarchy. Yes, yeah, so you believe it was morally wrong when you put on these raves at this time? No, it doesn't feel like that's me. At that time, it but wasn't. looking back at it now, do you yeah. think it wasn't wrong, was yeah. it? Yeah, well, one interesting thing was on a documentary which was made, which was National Geographic, when Captain Tappan speaks, and he, as the police commander, turned and said, what were they doing? You know, his argument was, why he took out 600 policemen on a Saturday night Waste of that taxpayers' money hunting us down when we were having innocent parties. What was the point of it? The argument was though that organised crime got involved yeah. and it had a lot bigger, you know, hand to in the later stages than you know what was happening. By organised crime being involved, we had to be the centre point of that. 